waiting. Waiting. I wasn't dancing, was I? I was swinging a little bit? Yeah, you can't help it. The music was there. Uh, waiting is one of those unfortunate activities that we are blessed with. And in fact, Israel, as we saw when we looked at the passage in Isaiah several weeks ago, Isaiah had to wait another 740 years before the coming of Christ. And last week we saw from Romans 12, when we are called to wait, which we are waiting right now for the Lord's return, we are waiting for Christmas, we are waiting for Monday to come, we are constantly waiting, and in the meantime, while we are waiting, God has purposefully given us something to do. And he's given us a lot of things to do, but we saw from Romans 12 last week that we have a lot of active moments that we are called to pursue. We are never called to simply daydream, sleep it away, or twiddle our thumbs in boredom. God has given us lots of things to pursue in this life, not just simply busy work, but actual activities that bring joy to our hearts, peace to our hearts, and blessing to others. But waiting is definitely part of our everyday life. Advent is also about waiting. It's about waiting and living with that tension between the way the world is and the way the way we wish the world would be one day. And so Advent, this time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, is this almost limbo, this, this moment where we are eagerly expecting something great. We see in the book of Revelation, lots of scary things happen, but the end of the story is Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns on this earth, a brand new earth, a brand new heaven, and it is glorious, and his people are just rejoicing day in and day out, and there are new discoveries about God's grace and his mercy, and I cannot wait until that moment where we no longer have tears and pain and sorrow and death and waiting because we will have the fullness of God totally revealed to us in completeness. No longer foreshadows, no longer just words, but we will see him as he truly is. But in the meantime, this moment is waiting for those days to come to pass. Advent also tells us about God who didn't simply look down upon us one day and say, well, if you want to get better, just have more Christmas spirit. No, he really did look down upon us and say, let me be with you. While you're going through this, I understand that it is traumatic. I understand that it is painful and filled with sorrow and filled with grief. But during this waiting period, I'm not just simply going to pat you on the back and give you a good word of encouragement. I'm going to be there with you. You see, one of the things that we often forget, because we are forgetful people, one of the things we often forget that while we are waiting for whatever it is, an answer to prayer, an answer for this, an answer for that, while we are waiting, God has given us inside of our own hearts, present with us at all times, His Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives and resides in every single believer. And so we are never alone. And so we can say, I will never leave you nor forsake you because I have built in you a temple of the Holy Spirit and I reside in you. He hasn't just simply said, good luck, but he's been with us ever since the beginning. And he sent his son to be with us. And so every Advent season is a time for us to remember that we live between those two comings of Christ. Christ. 
his first coming and his second coming. And it is a place that is often touched by grief, pain, sorrow, frustrations, death, and people that disappoint us. That is where we are living today. But there is joy in that. Don't let that just simply depress you and say, oh, it won't get better until I die. It'll be great when we are in heaven with him. Yes, but it can be great here. And I want these words this morning from Matthew chapter 2 to be an absolute encouragement to us as we think about this story of Christ's birth and what it means to us to live under his name, him with us. So we're going to look, oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 2 is for another time, but Matthew chapter 1. And no, we're not going to do the genealogy, which is amazing genealogy, absolutely amazing. We're going to look and start in verse 18. And we're going to look at verse 18 and 19 first, and we're going to see that this little cliff note of Christ's birth, which took place over a period of months, well, the pregnancy took place over a period of months. The birth was one night, okay, Back to the scripture, verse 18. We're going to pick it up there because uh, Matthew gives us precisely the historical events that take place for us to understand what it means that Christ is with us and what it means to live under his name. What does it mean to live under his name? We're going to find that out this morning. And so we're going to start in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18 and 19, and we're going to see this supernatural, natural event take place. Uh, leading up to the events. It says in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So here, here we have the information. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And we've seen this in Luke in various passages that talk about how the uh, angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're going to be uh, with child, he's going to be from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to give birth to the Savior. And there was lots of confusion in her mind, uh, lots of feeling of being unworthy, and obviously a lot of confusion regarding how is this going to take place. Well, that event had taken place, and Matthew picks up with already happening. And we know two things that are happening there. Mary and Joseph were in love. And however it happened in their day and time, in their culture, Joseph went to Mary and said, I want you to be my wife. And she said, yes. And so during that, what we would call engagement period, uh, engagement period is a little bit different today than it was in that culture and maybe even other cultures today. Engagement isn't just practice. Engagement is a pledge of loyalty that we're going to commit ourselves in a relationship of marriage. And according to Middle Eastern customs and especially Jewish customs, when you had that, will you marry me? Yes, I will. That was rock-solid contract, basically as if you were married. And so Joseph, in the midst of expecting this beautiful life to happen, but having to wait for marriage, that ceremony, he finds out that she is with child. Now, he doesn't know ahead of time that it's by the Holy Spirit, because what does his mind race to? Just like everybody's mind would race to. Who did she have relations with? Old boyfriend? New boyfriend? How, uh, you know, I cannot imagine the amount of questions that were going through his mind when he knew that they had committed to each other in marriage, waiting for that day and ceremony to take place where it would be recognized by the rest of the city, by the rest of Israel. 
only to find out that she was already with child. She was not a virgin in his mind. Verse 19, so that's the supernatural part. The supernatural part is, how did this take place? And I, I have no idea if we're going to find out even in heaven all the details on how it took place. It is what is called in Scripture a miracle. And miracles by nature are supernatural. It goes against the natural progress of how we see the world revealed to us through physics and chemistry and biology. It's different than that because it's miraculous. And there are some times where God calls upon us in faith to believe in the miraculous, to believe in something that our eyes do not see, our hands do not touch, and our mind cannot comprehend. It is okay to be in that spot where you are, wow, how did that happen? It is okay to look at something like this and go, it doesn't make sense. God never asks us once, please make sense of everything I say and do. Please make sense of it. Instead, he tells us to do what with everything he says and does? Believe it. Even if I don't understand it, I believe it. Even though I don't understand how gravity works, I believe in it. Even though I don't understand how the earth rotates, I believe it. Even though I don't understand lots of things, it comes down to the fact that when I eat, somehow my body gets nutrition and I live. I don't understand it. I know what happens. There's books about it. And so when it comes to these miraculous, miracle point events in Scripture, it is okay not to have an answer for everything, but to say, by faith, I believe it is so. And we, from this vantage point, realize the great benefit that it brings to humanity. But in Joseph's mind, the natural reaction in verse 19 is because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. So he was, he was one who looked at God's law, Moses, and said, I love it. I love what God has said on how to think about him and how to live my life. We're told that he was an outstanding man. He loved God's law, faithful to it, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. What a man of integrity, right? Because under the law, he had every right to go up to the city elders and say, my wife is pregnant and it wasn't me. And what happens to her? Stoned. Put to death. And then her accomplice was also brought before and stoned. But instead, he said, I want to do this quietly. I don't want to bring her any more shame, because that's exactly what he was thinking. How shameful of her to do this to me. We're not even physically married yet, and yet she's pregnant. So she should be cast out. So he wants to do it quietly, save her as much dignity as possible, although he had every right to bring her before the elders and say, she broke the covenant and contract I had with her. Put her to death. What a humble man. What a man who was not looking out for his own interests or his own pride, but just simply for her own good. Even when in his mind he only thought the worse. Just like any of us would think the worse of our partner if that happened to them. We would think the worse. So a very natural reaction to something very supernatural that took place. We continue because God doesn't leave Joseph waiting very long with this dilemma. What does he do? 
Does he divorce her? Does he do it quietly? Does he stay married and just accept the child as his own? What does he do? I cannot imagine the number of questions going through this guy's mind. But he loves God, and he wants the best for her. And so he goes to sleep one night, and God visits him in verse 20 through 23. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because, that, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 7 here. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There have been a number of times in my life where something has been on my mind, something has been challenging, I have been praying to God, looking for an answer, and I have prayed specifically, God, would you reveal to me in a dream what I should do? Do you know how many times that's actually happened to me? Once. Now, it was not an audible voice. I had a decision to make, and I went to the Lord, and I, I prayed days and days and days, and I said, finally, Lord, you've got to help me understand what direction I should take, because both options are good, which is the one that I should take? Now, knowing this side of a lot more knowledge and a lot more experience in the Christian faith, if they are good both, if they are both good options and they fulfill God's law, it doesn't matter which you take. But I, I was new in the faith, and I was really struggling trying to make life decisions. And I remember asking the Lord, somehow just show me that I should do this or that. And so I went to bed, and a couple nights later, uh, well, I went to bed a couple times but during the week, but a few nights later, um, I had this incredibly vivid dream in which there was clarity in my heart and my mind exactly what I should be doing with my life and how it should play out. And later on, I read in 1 John that God says, that the Apostle John says, there are times where young men will dream dreams and understand God's will for their lives. Now, paraphrasing that from chapter 2, but I look at that and I go, wow, that, that is clear. And that's happened one time in 30 years of walking with God. So it's not common. And I can't imagine that that was common with Joseph either. And it wasn't just a clear sign. God spoke to him through an angel. I have no idea how Joseph distinguished that from just eating something off that night for dinner and going to bed and having a weird dream from that. But it was clear in Joseph's mind because God, again, supernaturally, through an act of mercy and miracle power, was able to somehow infiltrate Joseph's sleeping mind and give him clarity. And what he said was, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what's happening in your life right now. Don't be afraid with what's happening with Mary. It's all going according to my plan. And yes, she is pregnant. 
but not by another man, by the Holy Spirit. God brought life to her womb, which was previously untouched and closed. And now there is life. And it's not just any life. This is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. His name will be Jesus because he will deliver his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And in Hebrew, that word is also the word tabernacle. Tabernacle, meaning God with us. I don't think Joseph sighed a sigh of relief during the dream, but I can imagine when he woke up, there was relief. His wife had not been unfaithful. God had done something miraculous with her and in her and that the world was going to benefit from this. So God brought an answer. I have no idea how long Joseph had to wait from the moment he found out his wife was pregnant. Could have been days, could have been weeks, could have been just that same day. But in the meantime, he remained a lover of God's law, wanting to do what was good and right, and wanting to save her integrity as best he could. And God revealed to him an answer miraculously to a miraculous question. How did my wife get pregnant? Well, Joseph responds to all this when he wakes up in verse 24 and the first part of verse 25. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. That's a very short verse for what's happening in Joseph's mind. Because I can imagine the skeptic in all of us, the doubter in all of us, waking up going, was it something I ate? Was this really a dream? Was this really God? Was this really an angel? Is this really true? I imagine he had a hundred questions about how, why, and what. But look at his response. Even with questions that a man would have, anyone would have, his response is what, ultimately? Obedience. Even though he didn't understand everything, it's obedience. Even though he didn't have a handle on how to explain it to everybody else, oh, you got married to a pregnant woman and it's not your child. You okay with that? He didn't even wrestle with any of those questions out loud. He simply obeyed God. He would have had those questions. He would have struggled with it. He would have struggled with the real basic question of, how did this happen? Spiritually, how does that happen? We wouldn't even know how that happens today. We would think there's some advanced technology that came back and did it. No, there wasn't advanced technology. It was God, his hand upon Mary, bringing her a child. But when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. When he woke up, he didn't wrestle with this for days and weeks. What should his decision be? Should he obey God or not? When he woke up, he did it. We don't know a lot about Joseph. We know his genealogy. We know a couple things we found out today, that he's the lover of God's law that he followed God's law, that he was an honorable man, that he was respectful of his wife, that he wanted the best for her, even though at the moment he saw something terrible. We know that he was a man of integrity. 
but we also know that he was a man of obedience. He didn't simply talk the talk of wanting to follow God. He did it when it was terribly difficult and flew in the face of everything he knew about science and pregnancy. When God said, do it, he did it. What a beautiful example Joseph is to us. Because God commands us, encourages us to do so many different things, spending our time waiting. And we wrestle with, is it worth it and should I? And Joseph had those questions more than we'll ever have those questions. What did God say? What should I do? Really? It's going to work out? It's that special of a life? Joseph woke up and did what the Lord commanded. Now, that's not to say he didn't have doubts and struggles and uncertainties. But his actions spoke volumes to the maturity of his heart. He simply obeyed God. took her as his wife. And then in that first part of verse 25, we're told that he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So until Christ was born, they lived as husband and wife, but there wasn't any relationship. Now, we're not told of their actual marriage ceremony because marriage ceremonies are so different, even in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. They're very cultural God does not have a lot to say except if you commit, you commit. Your word is that bond. That's good enough. There doesn't need to be a minister there. There doesn't need to be witnesses there. There doesn't need to be ceremonies. There doesn't need to be walking down the aisles. Now, that's beautiful, but we're not told about any of the wedding arrangements that took place. He simply took her home to his house and said, we're husband and wife. And in those days, that was all that was required by the law, and that was all that God required in that marriage but they were husband and wife. Husband and wife. And then without any fanfare whatsoever, we have the end of verse 25, that second part, and he gave him the name Jesus. He was born. Born. And Joseph names this new child that was not his own, Jesus. Now, we saw earlier in verse, uh, where was it, verse 21, that uh, the angel commanded Joseph, you're going to give him the name Jesus, which means deliverer. It's a Greek name. Jesus is a Greek name. Jesus. And the Hebrew equivalent is Yeshua. Close to Yeshua, Yeshua, which is the same name as, um, oh, Joshua, same name as Joshua in the Old Testament Hebrew, meaning the one who delivers or the one who rescues. The one who rescues. And the rescue, we're told in verse 21, is save his people from their sins. He's not there to be a champion against Rome or against the the wicked forces of the Pharisees and their their heavy-handed legalism. He's there to save his people from their sins. He's a champion. He's a king. He's a conqueror. He's a victor. He's going to take over something and relieve us of all the stress and pain and sorrow due to sin. Under him, there will be salvation. 
salvation. In Acts chapter 13, there's a beautiful passage that talks about uh, the birth, not, not the birth, but the rescue of Christ for his people. And so in verse, uh, Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 38, we read from Luke who writes, Therefore, my friends, this is Paul speaking, I want you to know that through Jesus, okay, so he's speaking specifically about the work of Christ, that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through the Deliverer, through the promised Deliverer, the one who will rescue, to you there is forgiveness of sins being proclaimed. Verse uh, 39, through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That through Christ and belief in him, every sin that you have, every sin that you have is forgiven. And you are justified. You are made right with God. And there was no way you could have done that through obedience to the law. That is miraculous. That is the deliverance that Christ brings to everyone who calls upon his name. Everyone who claims Christ is their Lord and Savior. Everyone who looks to Christ and says, I need you. In that moment, Christ goes, you are forgiven and you are made righteous in my sight. All of my good works are now your good works and all of your sins are now my sins. And it is every sin you commit. Every sin. Now that does not give you the freedom to go out and sin all you want, knowing that, oh, Jesus will forgive every sin. Paul says, perish the thought in Romans 6 that you live that way. That is not a gospel that is true in your heart. That is not right. Because when God has issued that forgiveness and he has declared you legally sinless in his eyes, that should motivate you to holiness, not to a life of sin and repeating the cycle but to holiness. Paul says every sin, every sin, even that sin that you feel guilty about today, that you may have committed years ago, God still has forgiven it. There is not a sin that you can bring up to me and say, Tim, I, I sinned this way against God. There's no way he can forgive me. The guilt is so bad. The guilt is there for a reason. It's to remind you, you need to ask forgiveness. And once you have asked forgiveness, how many times do you have to go back to God and ask forgiveness in order to be forgiven? How many times does God require you to seek forgiveness for that sin? How many times do you have to cry out, Lord, forgive me? How many times for that sin? One time. One time. Every other time that that guilt shows up, you can declare to it, Satan, Stop filling my head with lies. God has already forgiven me of that sin. Stop bringing that guilt and shame into my life because God doesn't see it. I only see it because you're bringing it up, Satan. Stop it. You can be that bold and say, depart from me because that is untruth. If you have asked God to forgive you, he has forgiven you. As far as the east is from the west, he has forgiven you. 
He has cleansed you as white as snow. You do not have to go time and time and time and time again seeking forgiveness for the same sin. Now, if that sin occurs again the next day, then you seek forgiveness. But I'm talking about sins, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. A sin that you may have committed years ago that keeps showing up and keeps bringing you guilt and shame and keeps making you think, I can't do that. I'm not strong enough. I'm, I'm not a good Christian. Look what I did. Yes, you did it. But if you sought forgiveness and asked God, forgive me, it is forgiven. Every sin. Every sin. There is not a sin that you can you can bring up to where God has not forgiven you if you've asked forgiveness. I know the question and challenge will come up because I've asked it of myself. But Tim, was that asking God forgiveness sincere enough? Was it sincere enough? Did I beg enough? What does God say about something like that, that kind of question? He doesn't. There's nothing in Scripture about that. Now, it's not just mere words I say, forgive me, and it's forgiven. There's a heart there. God does talk about the heart. God does talk about sincerity, meaning I mean it. But if you meant it 20 years ago and asked forgiveness, and it comes up again in your heart and your mind 20 years later, stop dwelling on it. It's been forgiven. That's what Jesus has rescued you from, the guilt and shame of past sins. Every past sin, and get this, every future sin. That's what he rescues you from. He rescues you from the guilt and shame and power that sin has over you to make you feel bad about yourself. But he's also forgiven others too. So you can't hold grudges about others. You can't hold it over someone else if God hasn't held it over them. If God has forgiven them, you forgive them. Oh, but Tim, I'll give you one time, maybe two, But you start doing that three times to me, four times to me, and don't you quote Peter on me that says, how many times do I need to forgive my brother who sins against me? Seventy times seven is ridiculous. We know that that was just hyperbole. He was just saying something to exaggerate the situation. No. If God has forgiven them, why would I not forgive them? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Model prayer. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Israel was absolutely confused by Jesus. Confused. Some were angered, but most were confused. How could believing in him save me from sin when I can't save myself? And God goes, you're right. Perfect. Now you're getting it. You can't save yourself. You need someone to save you. Who are you going to look to? It can't be your parents because your parents are sinners. 
Can't be the religious leaders because the religious leaders are sinners. Can't be the politicians because the politicians are sinners. It can't be the prophets because the prophets were sinners. It can't be Moses because Moses was a sinner. Who's going to save sinners? In comes God to step up and say, I am stepping in where you failed and you will never succeed. I will save you. I will forgive you. I will redeem you. I will rescue you. That is the power of living under the name of Jesus Christ, being his child, being his family member, being his follower and his disciple, means you live under that reality. He and he alone has rescued you. And there is no better place to turn than to Revelation chapter 21 to figure out what does that feel like and look like when that rescue is finally complete. In Revelation 21, Jesus says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things have passed away. That is what the name of Jesus, living under his name, means. I will one day be given that freedom over all the sorrows of this world. Is the waiting worth it then? Waiting 80, maybe 90 years, is that worth it? To have an eternity free from all the sorrows, pains, and weaknesses of this flesh, all the weaknesses of everyone around us? Is that worth it? It is. It's worth it. And so if you do not know Jesus Christ in that victorious deliverance way, then I know God is calling upon you right now to think of him that way and to be obedient like Joseph and say, you and you alone have the words of eternal life. Save me from my sins. And the answer that Jesus will reply to every one of those prayers is yes. I might ask, what took you so long? But yes, yes, I will forgive you. Yes, I will rescue you. Yes, I will be your Lord. Yes, I will be your king. I'll be your prophet. I will be your all in all. Just ask me. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before your throne, not just for ourselves, but for those that we know and love that don't know you. We pray, Father, that you would enter into their hearts and lives in any means necessary to awake them to your reality, your truth, and the freedom you offer through your Son, in whose name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have, a great, have, a great, have a great week, everyone. And uh, you will see me online. Thursday night, 5.30, tune into our website, our YouTube channel, and Facebook. Until then, goodbye and God bless.